All right, if you haven't had a chance to meet our dear friend Thurman Williams, Thurman is with us again today and uh, from St. Louis. Uh, Thurman preached here for us a few weeks ago. We're so thankful to have you here in person then. And then there was another Sunday when Thurman couldn't be with us. His travel schedule wouldn't allow. He's a church planter and uh, pastors a congregation of his own in St. Louis. And so uh, that week, Thurman recorded a sermon for us, and we felt like you were in the room with us. Man, thank you for doing that. And now thanks again for being with us again in person. So today, Thurman and I are going, are going to preach together uh, on, on the theme of hope, why we are hopeful. So as we've been going through uh, the issues related to the little book of Philemon in the New Testament, we've been talking a lot about justice, we've been talking a lot about unity, we've been talking about peace, as Peter reminded us, all the dimensions of that peace that God gives us, and it can be a daunting proposition to look at this world and to look at the church, to look at our own hearts and discover how much is broken and how much needs to be healed and to feel that we just aren't up to the task. So how can we take an honest look at everything that's broken in our lives, especially around issues of the need for unity and reconciliation among Christians of different races and ethnicities? Let's just start within the church. Christians are divided along racial and ethnic lines. Then we start to take a look outside the church and see those same divisions in the broader society. We can just feel like, you know what? We're giving up. <laughs> We've lost hope. And um, so I want to start, well, that's Thurman's slide. I'm going to try to go backward here. At Thurman. Um, we're going to start with this thought, which is... Um, Picture in your mind, if you could, a boat that's trying to move somewhere, and it's, it's an old-fashioned boat. No motor on this one. If it's going to go anywhere, it's going to be because the wind is blowing. You need a sail to catch the wind if you hope to move. You are dead in the water if you can't catch that wind. Now, for this image to really work, you need to know a little Greek. It always helps. The word for wind in Greek, is the same as the word for spirit. It's the same as the word for breath. This boat's not moving anywhere unless the power of the spirit moves it. And you've got a sail, and you can catch the wind, but now <laughs> something has torn the fabric. There's this huge rip in it. It won't be able to catch the wind until that tear is mended. That's a picture of what justice is. If you picture um, shalom, peace, this well-being that Peter mentioned that has these many dimensions, financial, relational, peace is physical, peace as it's meant in the scriptures, shalom, human flourishing, righteousness, everything being as it should be. That's peace. That's the kind of life and health and joy that come from the Holy Spirit. That's the sail being whole. And then there are things that come into our world that rip the sail, that tear the fabric of shalom, of peace, of well-being. 
And justice is what we do to mend the fabric. We see a tear. We want to repair it. Why? Because we're made in the image of God, and that is what God does. When he sees something in his good world that's disrupted the fabric of peace, he wants to repair it, make it right again so that the joy and the power and the life of the Holy Spirit can be fully experienced as he intends. One of the things that tears the fabric of shalom is division among people who ought to be united to one another. We studied a little New Testament book of Philemon, and it raises some hard topics. As soon as we start to look at them, we sense that there is disunity among God's people who should be united. We read about the topic there of slavery, and we sense the need for the gospel to transform Christian perspectives on unjust social institutions. That was a need in the first century church. It's a need in the 21st century church. We see in the little book of Philemon, as it's addressed to Philemon, a a slave owner in the first century, and it speaks of Onesimus, a slave in the first century, and the need for those two to be reconciled and in a culture that would have said it will be nearly impossible for these men to love one another. We have been committed for centuries as God's people to facing honestly that kind of division, that kind of difficult challenge. The church has always been committed to the work of justice, using the needle of redemption in Christ to pull the thread of love through the fabric of peace to mend what has been torn, to repair it and make it whole again. But that work is not easy. It demands more resources than we have. It's tempting to just give up and say, you know what? Can we just wait for Jesus to come back on this one? Because it just seems too big. It's too hard. Or sometimes we might say, um, can we wait for somebody else who has just not as much baggage? I mean, the Christian church has got so much baggage when it comes to racial tension, division. Can we just wait for another movement or a cause that has less baggage to come along? Can we wait for a political leader or a party or or a government program to solve all this? Because the church is just too broken. It's tempting to give up. What we want to do today is to push back against that temptation. And we want to say it is true that the work of pursuing justice and unity is hard. We want to say that it's so hard it demands more resources than we have. But we also want to say that because of Jesus, we are not limited to just our resources in this pursuit. That is why we are hopeful. Today's scripture reading will come from the book of Romans. It's addressed to a church that was torn by ethnic division. You'll hear that reference in the reading, weak and strong, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. Thurman will talk more about that. You'll hear a call to unity in this scripture text. 
But more importantly, you'll hear reference to the resources that are available to us because of Christ to fuel this pursuit of unity, resources that we don't have apart from Him, but because of Him, we are hopeful because He offers us all that He is. Let's hear our Scripture reading for the day. The Scripture reading this morning is Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open together with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for how it testifies about itself, that it's living and active, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, that means that you're able to get beneath the surface with us, and we're so grateful for that. You're able to get to our hearts and our thoughts and our attitudes and our minds. And so we pray that you would do your gracious surgery in our hearts, both here and, and, and online as well, in this time we're together. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your presence in all the places where we're gathered. Help us to understand these words that we read. And not only that, fill us with power to be able to live them out. And Lord, we pray you'd be glorified as you do that. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen, amen. You know, I don't know if you caught it, but in that verse, that last verse seven, really you got a whole sermon in that one verse. It shares for us all that we're gonna be talking about today, the, the three ideas that come out, the mandate for unity, welcome one another. The means for unity, as Christ has welcomed you. And then the motive for our unity to the glory of God. All of that in, in that one verse that captures the essence of the verses that come before. But let's look at those in turn. First, we'll start with the mandate for unity that's given here, and that is to welcome one another. Now, some of you remember may, maybe 30 or so years ago, back in the early 90s, this is be, even before social media and all of these things, there was the case of Rodney King. And Rodney King was a man, uh, there was actually a video captured of him being beaten by police officers in California. And then when those officers actually went to trial, they were all acquitted of any charges against, of wrongdoing against him. And then what sparked from that were riot, was rioting in California, in, in Los Angeles, in, in Watts and other places. 
And Rodney King famously came and said at a press conference, it's become a, a famous meme now. They didn't have memes back then. But he said, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? And that became a tagline many, in, in many ways. Maybe people were talking about nations warring against each other. And they say, can't we all just get along? We think about in our own country and unrest that we would have. People would say, can't we all just get along? But what about within the church, within the body of Christ, around these issues of, of justice and race and reconciliation and unity? Can't we all just get along? What about us today? What about us at home in town? Can't we all just get along? No. No. We can't. We can't just get along because we've been called to more. We've been called to love and unity and reconciliation. And what he calls us to here is to welcome one another. That is the call. And so can we all just get along? No. God has called us to more as the body of Christ. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this verse comes in, in chapter 15. And really, you've got to go back and read chapter 14 because those two chapters go together. And that word that's translated welcome is very important and vital. And you see it often in those two chapters. And welcome here, it means more than just to, to tolerate. It means to receive, to accept, to invite in, not just to my table, but to invite into my life to make space, to make room in my life so that you can be a part of that life. That's what he's calling them to do. Now, if you go back, how do you see that? Verse one, we who are strong, he says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us please his neighbor, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, this is a lot more. In our own culture, there's the idea of tolerance. And what do we mean by that in our culture? By tolerance, we mean, okay, you can believe whatever you want. Whatever you want, it's all right. But don't you try and tell me what I should believe. And if you do, guess what? You're canceled right away. But that's not what this is talking about. What does he mean here by strong and weak? What is he, what is he saying? Now, if you go back and you look, as Jimmy mentioned, there's tensions going on in their context between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And, and as we're looking and reading, it's over what they're eating or what they're drinking and what they're allowed to do. There's one group that feels like it's wrong to eat these certain things. That would be against God to be able to, to eat or drink these certain things. And the others would say, no, they're not. It's not wrong. It's all right. And in this case, that is the strong. And that is who Paul is putting himself among. So they're not talking about in terms of will or character, but they're talking about being strong in terms of faith. And these groups are looking down on each other within the church because of their cultural differences. But look at what Paul is doing. Paul is putting himself in the category of the strong in this case. But he's saying, I'm not canceling you. The opposite. 
I want to invite in. I want to love. I want to adjust my life to have those that are so-called weak involved and engaged in my life. Now, again, in verse 1, maybe when you're reading that, you're reading Paul and you're saying, wait a minute. Paul says not to please ourselves. Let, us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Maybe you say, man, Paul is contradicting himself. Because Paul, if anything, he is not a people pleaser, right? There's another place in Galatians. He says, am I trying to please God or am I trying to please men? If I'm trying to please men, he says there, I can't be trying to please God. And so is he contradicting himself there? No, because what he's talking about here is pleasing his neighbor for what? For his own good, not for my own good, but for his good. What, do you, what does he mean? Has anybody in here, you, you ever taken the Enneagram? Have you, have you guys done that? You know what I am on Enneagram? I'm a two, right? Any twos in here? Can we commiserate together? Well, some, one of the things it says about the two is you're the giver, right? You love to be with people and give and serve, but, 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 they, but all those, those categories, they have kind of a shadow side, right? And what's the shadow side of the two? Is that when you're giving, you're not really giving for their sake. You're giving for your sake. You're trying to please so that you receive something in return when it goes wrong. When it goes right, it's fantastic. But when it goes wrong, that's what you're trying to do. And so Paul is saying here, that's not the kind of pleasing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about pleasing them for their good. This is the mandate for unity, welcoming one another. Look at those words in that passage, bearing with the failings of others, trying to please not ourselves, but to please them and to build our neighbor up for his good. That's the mandate for unity, to welcome one another. How do we apply that in our own settings? Well, one thing is to realize this, that it depends on who's the strong and who's the weak, right? I'm sorry, it's not cut and dried because you say, who's the strong, who's the weak in this situation? It depends. Because here in this passage, in the Romans context, the Gentile believers, mostly there, they are the strong and the Jewish believers are the weak. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and look at a similar disagreement that's going on there, in that case is the opposite. In that case, the Jewish believers are the strong and the Gentile believers are the weak. And so the answer is it depends. And so what does that mean? Maybe some of you come here today or maybe some of you are at home online. You feel like I'm always among the weak. I don't have anything to offer, but what this says to you is, yes, you do. There are times when your perspective is needed. You say, I'm from another race. I'm from another age. Sometimes your perspective is, is most needed in this situation. And then I also say to those of us that maybe we feel like we're in the strong all the time. And that is not only to invite in the weak, but also the call is to put yourself in the position of the weak. Or maybe it's to realize that you are the weak in many situations. Um, I was reading a book, it's called, um, what is it called? Um, by an author named Drew Hart, The Trouble I've Seen. 
And it's, it's around these issues of reconciliation and, and unity and justice. And Drew Hart is an African-American pastor in Philadelphia. And he, he shares a story of, of having lunch at McDonald's with the white pastor there in Philly and they're talking about these issues back and forth and, and they order a cup of sweet tea or as you call it here in the South, tea. That's, that's just how it is. Well, they're having this discussion and the white pastor says to Drew Hart, he says, you know what? This reconciliation, these justice things, you know what they're like? It's just like this cup of tea because on the one side of the cup, it says sweet tea, right? It's got that logo that you see there. But if you turn around the other side, it's got a diff- it has different words. And from your perspective, you can see this side of the cup. From my perspective, I can see this, ca- this side of the cup. And that's what we need. We need to be able to bring those perspectives together. And Drew Hart, the African-American pastor, says that that's true, but there's something that you have to understand. He says, to exist in your world, I have to know what's on both sides of the cup. I don't just have to know what's on my side. I also, if I'm going to succeed, I have to know what's on your side of the cup. But he says, you know what? You don't have to know what's on my side of the cup for you to succeed. What do I mean? I'll give an example before we move on. I don't know if any of y'all saw this PBS special that came on just a few weeks ago on the black church. And I grew up in the black church. That was my own heritage. And it has so many powerful stories, so many powerful things. And there's also some stuff that's messed up, just like in every, in every church that's in there. But anyway, as I was thinking and I was watching that, this four-hour miniseries, all of this, this wonderful history, I thought of all the seminary classes that I had taken on church history, three of them. Nothing that's mentioned in that documentary was mentioned in any of my seminary classes. Nothing of that rich history that's not just of the black church, it's of the church. It's a part of the church's history. And so for me to get an A in church history, I don't have to know anything about what's on that documentary. I have to know all the other things. But someone cannot know anything about what's captured there in the documentary on the black church and still get an A. They don't have to learn about that. And so what I'm inviting you into What does it mean to welcome one another? How do we live out this mandate? Sometimes it means inviting in others into our space, but other times it means putting ourselves in the position of the weak or recognizing that we're in the position of the weak and that we need to be invited in. We need to learn. And maybe there's some people around you that would be so glad to teach you about that. So first, the mandate. Second, we want to look at the means. And what is the means of unity? It comes in that second part of verse 7. You welcome one another. How? As Christ has welcomed you. I would often, my kids sometimes would ask me, hey, what are you preaching about today? And what's the answer? I would say, Jesus. They say, oh, you say that all the time. Well, actually, that's the answer here. That's the means for our unity. It's Jesus. Now, that's the right answer all the time, but but specifically, how? Well, how does Paul talk about it here? First, he talks about the example of Jesus. Look at verse 3. He says, welcome. Look at how Jesus welcomed. It says, he did not please himself. Remember how it's talking about pleasing in verses 1 and 2? But he says, Jesus did not please himself. 
but as it is written, and here he quotes from Psalm 69, and this is a quote from this Psalm that's about a person who is suffering and they're suffering at the hands of their own brothers, at the hands of their own people, far beyond what they deserve, what they should or how they should be suffering. And this is a favorite of Jesus's. And he quotes, he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so we can look at the example of Jesus Christ. You want to know how it is to welcome somebody? Look at Jesus, the greatest welcomer of all time. But then not only that, not only does he give us his example or his model, but he also gives us his word, the word of Jesus. What Paul refers to here is the word of God. And here he's just talking about the Old Testament. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Isn't that good news? So what we read about in the Old Testament, what we read about in Philemon, what we read about here in Romans, it's, it's written for our instruction. And then it gives some things that we're going to need, right? If we're going to want to enter in and engage in this, this mission of justice and reconciliation. It says, so that through endurance, anybody weary today? Anybody need some endurance? It says, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. Is there anybody discouraged? As we've been talking through all of these issues and hard things have been brought up, anybody discouraged today? And then the last part, it says that we might have hope. Is there anybody here that feels like giving up hope? You say, this is too hard. I don't see how any good can come of this. And so look at what the word of Jesus brings to us. Exactly what we need. Endurance, encouragement. And hope, oh, don't we need those so much? But you say, Pastor, I've got those and I'm still messing up. Well, you're not alone. Think about the apostle Peter, right? You remember Peter, right-hand man of Jesus, the rock. Do you remember Peter? He is the one who preaches at Pentecost and sees the Holy Spirit come and save thousands of people who've come to gather from all these different places. And then he's the one who preaches to Cornelius to, to see the Gentile Pentecost. And then you go to Galatians 2, and Paul talks about having to confront Peter. Why? Because Peter is there, he's hanging out with, with the Gentile believers, but then his fellow Jewish believers come, and what does Peter do? He switches up, he, he leaves. He leaves the Gentile believers. And so Paul confronts him. He says, man, you're wrong. And so think about, this is the apostle Peter. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's seen all these things. He's experienced all these things, and he's still messing up. And I say that as a word of encouragement to you. <laughs> to know that you're not alone. Because there's going to be lots of times when you go, man, I thought I had this down. I, I thought I, I, I understood and and." And you say something and someone's hurt or you're misunderstood or something happens and you're like, oh, I just want to give up. But look at Peter. He's failing. Why in the world would you think that you and I won't? And so you say, well, that's great, but I need help. I need more than that. Well, the great news is that Jesus has given us more than that. What do I mean? If you look at verse 7, again, it says, therefore, welcome one another. How? 
as Christ has welcomed you. Now, I want you to think about that phrase in a different light than the way I mentioned it before, because earlier I talked about it in terms of, of Christ's example, right? We can welcome the way that he has, right? Look at how he welcomes. That's a great example to us. But brothers and sisters, isn't it true that we need more than Christ's example? It's good news. Well, wait a minute. Y'all didn't answer that. Isn't it true that we need more than just Christ's example? Amen. We need more than that. We need Christ's welcome. It's not just that he shows us how to welcome. Our power, our resource, our strength, our life comes from how he has welcomed us. Oh, and how has he welcomed us? Oh, what's the greatest example that you can think of, of the strong bearing with the weak? Jesus is the strongest of the strong, and he bears with the weakest of the weak. Oh, where do we see the Lord Jesus pleasing not himself, but pleasing God and pleasing those around him, living for the good of others so they might have life? Oh, brothers and sisters, where is it? Through his whole life and really on the cross, Where do we see Jesus taking on the reproaches of those around him? Where did they fall on him? They fell on him at the cross. And through his whole life leading up to that, but most of all at the cross when he's dying for our sins. And you know what he's doing at that place? Jesus is making a negative evaluation. He's saying, you know what? You guys are sinners. in need of salvation, and you can't do a thing to save yourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. He's making a negative evaluation, but he does that. He says, that's why I came in the first place. Do you remember Jesus saying to the people when they're complaining about him sitting around with people they think he shouldn't be with, what does Jesus say? He said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick I haven't come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Why did I come? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was bruised for our transgressions because he doesn't have any. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. It's through his welcome that you and I are welcomed. Can you rest and receive how Jesus has welcomed you? Can you just sit in that for a moment? Can you sit in what he's done to welcome you? Receive that and think. I'm not saying leave your your mind at the door. Use your mind. Because there's some songs, there's a song verse that says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross... My burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. 
And then what happens next? And then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. And there's an old gospel song that says, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, it makes my soul cry, hallelujah. And I thank God for saving me. This is the means for our unity. It's how Jesus has welcomed us. Maybe somebody's here, maybe somebody's at home, and you've never received that welcome before. But this is what Jesus has done to welcome you not just into his building, not just into his church, but into his family. This is how he's welcomed you. And have you and I forgotten that? That's what Paul always uses for motivation, isn't it? If you go to um, 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is telling them, flee from sexual immorality. But then he says, don't you realize that you're not your own? You were bought with a price through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. When he's in, in 2 Corinthians 8, he's telling them to give. What does he say? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich for your sakes, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And so here, he's saying, I'm calling you to welcome one another. But how? As Christ has welcomed you. That's where we find the strength and the power to be able to do what he's called us to do, to not give up when we feel like giving up, to persevere when we don't have strength in and of ourselves anymore. He provides the means. But lastly, you say, well, why has he done it? What's the purpose? What's the motive? And that's what we want to look at last. The motive for unity, what did he say? It's for the glory of God. In other words, it's not political correctedness. It's not to be socially conscious. It's not to say of how woke I am. The whole point, the whole motive for the unity is for the glory of God. How do we see that? Verse 5, listen to Paul's prayer, his, his hope for them. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Remember, he was just talking about the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. And now he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. And literally, that, that phrase there, it's, a, it's, it's literally to be of the same mind. To literally think the same thing. And you say, well, that's impossible because there's no way we're going to think the same thing. You think about all of our political differences, our cultural differences, all those differences. He's saying, yes, I know all those differences, but what I want you to do is be united in the midst of them because he qualifies it. Live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Oh, and the things that you hold in common in faith in Jesus Christ. I know you disagree on so many things and you're different in so many ways. Thanks be to God for that. We're gonna to get to that in a second. I made you that way. But I want you to be of one mind in following and knowing Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, verse six. Why that together you may with one voice, and can't you just picture this glorious choir 
where you have altos and sopranos and tenors and even some basses in there. That together with one voice, right? When a choir is really good, doesn't it? It sounds like one powerful voice. And that's the picture that it gives. That together with one voice, all of those different people come together that you might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's for the glory of God. Again, last verse, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another. How? As Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. (laughs) He calls us to be unified so that God would be glorified. He wants God glorified in the, in the Roman church. He wants God glorified in the church that meets in Philemon's house with Onesimus there. And in town, he's calling us to do this project for the glory of God so that he is glorified in the end. The motive for unity is that God would be glorified through that unity. That's what we're after. Now, I want you to think about these pictures in Revelation 5. I'm sorry, I didn't print. I didn't think to print this passage. But in Revelation 5 and Revelation um, 7, Revelation 14, you see these pictures and they're described as people from every language, right? And people and tribe and, and nation. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen those? People from every tribe and language and people and nation in all those places. Now, I always wonder, how is it that John knew that in that vision? Now, the language part, you think, all right, he can hear that they're speaking different languages. But how do you know in this vision that there are different people and they're from different tribes and different nations? How did he know that? Because of how they looked in the vision. Why do I bring that up? To make the point to say that God is not colorblind. And here's what I mean. You say, hold on, pastor. You're throwing in some theological heresy here. Wait a minute. Because I I know what God said. He says, God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't show favoritism. Amen. That's right. But here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is God has created us on purpose the way that we are. It's the plan and purpose of God that I wouldn't be just a man, but I would be a black man. That's God's design. And that is his design that's for his glory. And so I know sometimes for some people that can be uncomfortable because you're like, you know what the problem, the reason we have all this trouble with race is because we keep talking about it. If we just wouldn't, if we just stopped talking about diversity, then we wouldn't have all this trouble with it. Well, that's not, the diversity is not the problem because God made us that way on purpose. Now, my son Josh is here from Covenant College. He was so gracious to come with me. And he is an amazing artist. And I've got a little bit of his artwork there. You see that? This is a project that that he calls Genesis. And some of it, I mean, Josh will be glad to explain it to you when, well, I guess when there's not a pandemic, he'll sit down with you and talk about it. But, but it's a lot about Genesis in the Bible, but also thinking about, he, he modernizes, it, modernizes it and thinks about families in the places where we grew up. And all of that is captured 
in, the, in that painting. But suppose you're talking with Josh and you say, you know what, Josh, I love that picture. But when I look at it, I don't see color. Instead, it would look like that. That's kind of different, isn't it? And here's the two together. Suppose you said, Josh, when I look at it, I don't see color. Josh would say, hold on. I put the colors there on purpose. The colors tell part of the story. And at the end of the day, that picture glorifies the artist who made it because of those rich colors. It's because of that it gives glory to the artist. And the same thing in the wisdom and power of God and this great vision of people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue, it glorifies God. It gives glory to God because it tells us more about who God is because of that diversity. Now I have a confession to make, then I'm going to sit, I'm going to turn it over, I'm going to sit down. This is, this is terrible, but I'll share it with y'all. Just keep it between us, all right? Um, this is about five or six years ago, I was speaking at a missions conference. And, um, and it was, you know, an, like four hours away from us. And, and Josh and Caleb, they were younger then. Those are my two younger sons. They came with me. And so we went to the missions conference and I spoke there and the, the last church service was over and we were going to meet some friends of mine that we had in that city for lunch. And so as I'm going to the car, um, there's a woman from the church that comes over to me and she's talking and she's thanking me for coming. And she says the last thing, she says, you know what? When I look at you, I don't see color. I don't see a black man. I just see a man. I just see a preacher of the gospel. And so in my mind, right, I'm like, all right, I got a choice right here, right? I'm tired. <laughs> Just preach a sermon. I'm getting ready to meet my friends to lunch. My boys are in the car. It's August. We got to, we, I just, just, I could just say thank you and, and get in the car and we could leave. Or I could take 10 or 15 or 20 minutes and say, hold on. Let me explain what I just told y'all about God is glorified through the diversity that he brings there. When you say to me, I don't see color when I see you, what it feels like is you don't see me. Or you just see me as just a, a more tan version of you. You don't see me, but God made me this way. And so I have a choice, right? What do you think I did? I said, thank you. <laughs> and I, I still regret that. But I was, I mean, I had a, a great pastoral opportunity, man. But I was like, I'm tired. I want to get to lunch. But I missed an opportunity. But this is really the last thing, right? Preachers always say, this is the last thing. But, but this really is the last thing. And that is, let's think about in those pictures in Revelation, what do they sing about? Are they singing about their diversity? Are they singing about their own ethnicity? What is it that they sing about? If you go and you read there, they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. 
Or they say salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne. Or they say hallelujah, salvation and glory be to our God forever and ever. What do I mean? They are glorifying God. They're not glorifying themselves. God made them that way, but it gives glory to him. And that is the ultimate goal of our unity. God's not glorified by us trying to wipe out the diversity he created us with in the first place. He's glorified through it. And so the application in this last point, what's the motive? It's the glory of God. I want you in those moments where it's uncomfortable, when you feel like going, oh no, if we would just stop talking about diversity, if we would just stop talking about that, when you're tempted to say, I just don't want to talk about this anymore. Instead, turn that temptation to run, turn that discomfort into praise and say, God, I praise you for this diversity that's making me uncomfortable right now. I give you praise. May you be glorified in it because you're the one who made it and you did it for your glory. Give him the praise. That's the motive. It's for the glory of God. Let me turn it back to Jimmy to end our time. So we have an amazing opportunity right now to actually live out what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of this church where weak and the strong are united. Uh, Thurman just spoke to many of us who grew up being taught that it was right to say, I'm colorblind. And Thurman just said, it's wrong to say that. Here's how you know that we're a church made up of weak and strong. Some of you still will leave this room thinking it's right to say I'm colorblind. <laughs> Thank you, Thurman, for preaching that. Thank you for showing me from the scriptures a different perspective, but I still disagree with you. And some of us will leave this room absolutely 100% convinced that everything Thurman said about colorblind was, was spot on. Can we still love one another? Even if we disagree about that. That's the level of, of gut reaction disagreement that was happening between Jewish and, and Gentile Christians in the first century. People who couldn't see eye to eye on some issues of right and wrong. I was listening to a TED talk lately um, by a, a philosopher named Juan Enriquez. It's called How Technology Changes Our Sense of Right and Wrong. He starts out by saying, hey, we live in this culture of extreme polarization. It's a, it's a time when statements about right and wrong can get you into big trouble. And he says, uh, you know, right and wrong changes over time, driven by technology. And one example he gave was, you know, you, you may grow up in a culture where it's considered right to eat a big slab of juicy steak, um, and there's no great alternative because there's no technology to, to create synthetic meat that's worth eating. But as that technology develops, 
maybe over time, it becomes easier to be a vegetarian and to still enjoy something steak-like that isn't steak. And so he says, you know, as that technology develops, then our sense of whether it's right or wrong to eat meat may change. Right and wrong change over time, driven by technology. And he gives these uh, solutions or applications. If he was a preacher, he'd say these are applications, right, Thurman? Humility and forgiveness. If you lived at a time when there was no good uh, fake meat available, then uh, you might have thought the same way about vegetarianism. So show humility toward people who don't see eye to eye with you over issues like this. And uh, be willing to forgive people who, who, who do what is wrong out of that place of humility. Well. Dr. Enriquez is certainly right about polarization, and, and I think he's right about technology being a really important factor in social change. He's absolutely right that we need to show humility and forgiveness toward one another. But here's what's missing from his analysis. Humility and forgiveness are incredibly hard. It is really difficult to live that way. In his analysis, his TED Talk, as much brilliance as it presents in its seven-minute format, never offers us any resources that could fuel humility and forgiveness. In fact, it seems to undermine the case because if right and wrong change over time, then why should I bother with humility and forgiveness toward you? Because maybe the next generation, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, is going to come along and do an experiment that shows that humility wasn't right in the first place, that forgiveness was wrong. If right and wrong change over time, then maybe those things would change over time too. So he's building this case for unity based on humility and forgiveness, but there's no foundation underneath it. Do you hear the beauty of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ? That when we call for unity and we, when we say we should seek, seek justice, seek to repair the torn fabric of shalom, that's built on a case that has a foundation underneath it that will never change. The foundation is the glory of God. God will never cease being worthy of worship. The fuel that fills the tank of pursuing humility and forgiveness and unity and reconciliation and peace is not good wishes that might evaporate over time as technology shows us how silly we once were. It's based on the work that Jesus Christ has done, an infinite supply of fuel in the tank. We can show humility to one another because Christ will never, ever change. He will never regret humbling himself to redeem us. We can show forgiveness toward one another because Christ will never, ever change. He will never say, you know what was wrong of me? To forgive you. I take it back. He will never grow weary of applying his shed blood to our weaknesses, our sins, our failures, so that we are completely forgiven. We can welcome one another because Christ will never change. He will never say, sorry, the table is full. I can't make space for you. 
around my table anymore. Sorry, my life is filled up. I can't create space for you in my life anymore. He will never do that. We can welcome one another because Christ will always welcome us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you that this is the truth. This is not wishful thinking. This is as real as the nails driven by a Roman hammer into a cross carved out by the hands of a real carpenter who got splinters in those hands. This is as real as blood spilled on that Roman cross, as real as the resurrection glory that bewildered disciples glimpsed on Easter Sunday and could not believe their eyes because in their real world, this had never happened before. And that's the point. Apart from you, it never would have happened, but because of you, your crucifixion, your resurrection, we are not alone in this life. The resources available to us for all that you call us to are greater than any of us has alone. They are greater than all of us have together. The resources that fuel our faithfulness to you begin first and foremost with your faithfulness to us. We thank you that we have this hope. And we thank you that sometimes there are those of us who can see the hope more clearly and hold to it strongly and reach out and grab others who are losing hope. And we can hold on to hope together in that way through you and because of you. We rejoice in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.